Hello and welcome to episode 86 of this podcast we call Two Chairs Talking. My name, as always, is Perry Middlemas. I'm here, also, as always, with my erudite friend David Grigg. Hello, David. Hi. We should get you to change your name by depot in between so you can say something different, you know, next time. Oh, no, no. <laughs> I've, um, no You're pretty, no, pretty happy with the name, your name as it stands? Well... <laughs> Names are one of those funny things, you know, when you're, when you're younger, you sort of think, no, you don't really like it very much. And later on, when you realise that it's um, rather uncommon, you actually think, yeah, people could find me. Mm. I mean, that's the one thing about it is that I find it weird when people say, um, so what's your email address and where are you? And I said, just do a Google search. <laughs> You'll be able to find me. Yeah, I'm easy enough to mm. find. There aren't all that many around. Um, uh, there was another Perry Middlemiss in Ottawa uh, who died uh, a couple of years back. Um, uh, I was actually hoping that I was going to get over there and um, have a chance to meet him, but he died before um, yeah. I could get to Canada. Yeah, so, but unfortunate. But there, there are lots of lots of David Griggs around. I can tell you that. So, uh, oh yeah, well, see, that's even yeah, a common, including famous, including a, a, an agricultural economist who's written tons of books. So if you sort of oh. hunt for books by David Grigg, well, they all come up about, you know, the, oh. the agrarian, agrarian revolution in 17th century Britain, you know, that sort of stuff. Oh, oh God, that's a bit dry. <laughs> that's pretty dry. That's oh, OK. Well, yeah, you never know, though. Mm. It might be an absolutely fascinating read. Sure you probably come across stuff that you think, mm. I've never knew that. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> now my life is complete. <laughs> I don't think so. No, no. Somehow, I don't think so. No, no. But... You never know you're like in the big city, David. Yeah, anyway, it's interesting. Uh, yeah. But have you read any of things? No, no, I haven't read any of David Grigg's agricultural economics books, no. Oh, okay. Well, I should get probably have library and have a bit, of a, yeah, a bit of a perusal and see what it's like and get in contact with him and yeah. say, cease and desist. Yeah. <laughs> or right. like no, 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 no. Never mind. Uh, we don't want to do that. But uh, oh, look, it's just interesting. Names are, names are good. It's just useful having a, for me, I find it useful having a, a rather unusual name. Um, although a lot of people struggle with it. And I get, I get called everything under the sun from Kerry and Terry. and uh, Anyway, you just have to, it, I, I don't get too precious about it. I just sort of say, no, the name's Perry with a P. Mm. And that's it. And I just move on. I mean, I know people, a lot of people get very upset when we mispronounce names. And if we do, we humbly apologise. Uh, we do it because, and I'm bound to do it in this particular episode, we do it because we haven't come across the names very much. And uh, the ones that I really struggle with, I do try to have a look at, uh, uh, there's a there's a pronunciation guide on Google that you can put a name into and it'll tell you how to pronounce it. And you try to do those as best you can, but sometimes you even forget because it's quite astounding how when you hear a name or read a name, the very first method that your brain says this is how it should be pronounced, it's very hard to break out of yeah, that. Yeah. You just get that into your head and it seems like it's sort of etched into the concrete of your brain and it's hard to get that that around to the correct way of doing things. So blanket apology all the way right across the board. If we make some mistakes today, we apologise. Yep. That's just the way it is. Okay. Which leads us actually into um, into news, news. because um, we do have a bit of news uh, on the literary field and a couple of other things. And uh, so I'll start off if you like, and uh, with the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards, which were uh, released uh, just in the last 
couple of weeks, yep. I think. Yep. Um, the Fiction Award was run by uh, Jessica Al for her novella, Cold Enough for Snow. I actually reviewed that uh, on the podcast last year. And I, while I was impressed with the writing, I just didn't think it went anywhere. Mm. It, um, uh, it's a story about uh, a woman, Australian woman of Asian descent who catches up with her mother after not having seen her for some number of years. And they decide to go on a holiday together to uh, Japan and they meet up. In Japan, and then it's just the discussion about what they learn about each other. And I just didn't really think that the main character changed very much from the start of the novella to the end. Um, you know, I mean, as I said, I thought it was very, very well written, but uh, anyway, there we go. Uh, different strokes. Yeah. It's the good thing about this, David, it's short. Yes. Um, as a novella, it's very short. A uh, poetry award was won by At the Altar of Touch by Gavin Yuan Gao. Nonfiction was won by uh, Edna, oh, sorry, Ida. See, I told you I was going to make mistakes. Ida Gunarden for Root and Branch Essays on Inheritance. Young Adult Literature, which you may know this. We Who Hunt the Hollow by Kate Murray. Yeah, I haven't read that yet, no. Okay, all right. Put that one on your list, no, David, because you're the, you're the big young adult man. I would say I'm more a middle school man, actually. You're sort of middle grade. Okay, well, okay so it's probably middle school. Like, but yeah. I think, well, yeah, okay, so young adult... Maybe we should talk about that at some stage mm. in terms of the definition. I think young adult is a, is a... We should talk about it. I think young, young adult is a specific thing... In itself, which there's a particular, there's a, there are particular tropes and approaches that that books label as as YA get. I think, which yeah, I don't know. It's it, it is an interesting issue, but we this is not the time so to discuss it. No, but we should go into it a little bit more at some sure, other time, sure. and maybe we'll put that down for a later discussion. Yep. Um, Indigenous writing, the Upwelling by Lystra Rose. And overall, what they do with the Victoria Premier's Awards is they get all of the category winners and then they decide who is going to pick up the Victorian Prize for Literature. And that was won by Cold Enough for Snow by Jessica Owl. Uh, and um, uh, and that, oh, as I said, I gave that about 3.3 out of 5. Uh, she's done very well with it. And good luck. I'll be interested to see um, what she does next, mm. if she decides to do something next yeah. because she picked up over $120,000 for the prizes in this particular um, uh, set of awards. So she may decide to take a bit of time off. Yeah, David. put her uh, feet up. Yeah, hopefully. Well, hopefully um, if she published it, if she published the novella sometime last year, that theoretically she should have been working on something. What is it? The general idea is um, you never send something out for, for a submission until you've got the next one started so that you've got something rolling all the time. So you Good don't sit theory. back and go, well, I'll see how that one went, yeah. and then start writing something else. No, 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 just keep going. Just keep moving on. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, that's a good bunch of um, uh, titles that we've picked up from the Victorian Premier's Literary Award. Now, the other big bit of news, this time in the genre, science fiction and fantasy genre uh, area, is that the Locus Recommended Reading List for 2022 has been released and is available for free, that you can have a look at it and see it on their 
website and we'll put a link in the show notes regarding that. But if you just look up Locus Magazine and you'll find it right at the very top because it's the big thing for, for February. Uh, and there's a fair number of Australians on this list, David, quite more, a lot more than I thought mm-hmm. uh, there would be because normally you get sort of one or two if you're lucky. Um, uh, so that's pretty good. And don't forget here that we're dealing with we're dealing with categories like best SF novel, best fantasy, best horror, best YA, best first novel, anthology, collection, um, novella, novelette, short story, uh, best nonfiction, best associated, best art. Just goes on and on mm. and on and on. There's large numbers, but they cover everything in the field. And you look at it and you think, we're very, very lucky that this has been running for as long as it has because it gives us each year a good solid chunk of information about what the SF and fantasy fields are doing in a particular year. I can't find anything similar in the crime fiction mm. or mystery or thriller areas. And, you know, that would be really good to be able to have something like that. So if you had a, you know, you have to sort of cobble it together from all the different... Um, um, awards, you know, you have to get, you know, if you want the best PI novel, the best um, espionage novel, the best mystery, the best thriller, the best cosy, all the different categories that they might have for that, and best novel, you can't find it anywhere. You have to get it all together. Here, with Locus, the science fiction and fantasy genre, you get the whole lot all in one particular place, which is great. And I hardly recommend that people support this because it's a wonderful magazine and it's really, really very, very useful. Anyway, back to the Australians on the list, David. Best SF novel, Mage of Fools by uh, Eugen Bacon. Now, uh, Eugen Bacon is an uh, African-Australian um, novelist who uh, I'd heard a bit about, but not a lot, and then I went and looked her up in the last couple of days. By crikey, she's written quite a yeah. lot of, um, uh, of work. So uh, I'll have to start uh, uh, checking some of that out. There's a new novella coming, uh, just come out from them, and I'll um, uh, have just ordered that. In fact, it's being published tomorrow. Yeah. So I've got it on pre-order, and it'll be churning up tomorrow. So hopefully um, I'll be able to uh, uh, review that shortly. Mm. Uh, best fantasy novel, The Path of Thorns by Angela Slatter. Best novella. The Bone Latin by Angela Slatter. She's been around for quite some time and has had, um, is well known in the field. Best collection, there's two. Chasing Whispers by Eugen Bacon. Bacon again. And Hard Places by Kirsten McDermott. Best anthology, two of them, edited by uh, Jonathan Strawn from Perth. First one, Someone, Someone in Time, Tales of Cro- Time Cross Romance. And Tomorrow's Party's Life in the Anthropocene. And Best Nonfiction, An Earnest Blackness by Eugen Bacon. So that's three entries right. she's got. Mm. Uh, and Story Matrices, Cultural Encoding and Cultural Baggage in the Worlds of Science Fiction and Fantasy by Gillian Pollock. And uh, that wins the award for longest title for this particular <laughs> uh, for this particular year. So that's a good range of Australian... Uh, SF and fantasy and uh, related material in the recommended list. But as I said, I would uh, recommend that people go and have a bit of a look at it. Uh, It's got links off to a number of the shorter stories, uh, novelettes and short stories that take you off to the original internet 
magazine printing of them, and you can read them for free. Mm. Mm-hmm. And if you like the particular magazine that uh, the book, those stories are in, you can subscribe, of course, and help them uh, continue to produce material. Uh, unfortunately, there weren't any Australian authors in the um, in the uh, shorter fictions, uh, novelette and short stories. Occasionally, there are, but there weren't weren't, weren't this year. So um, uh, anyway, so it's a good bunch of stuff uh, and. Uh, there may well be more in that particular list because it's so long. Mm, um, there's probably well, there's probably there's generally thirty SF novels recommended, thirty fantasy, fifteen to twenty horror, fifteen to twenty YA, twenty twenty five first novels. When you get down to short stories, there's like sixty or seventy. Mm. Uh, so it just shows you the the wide range and depth of material that's been published every year in the genre. It's quite large, and um, it's. Um, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a, there's just a heck of a lot of it. The, the standard refrain is, David, you just can't keep. No, no, no impossible. That, that's it. You just can't. But you do the best you can. And in some ways, that people wonder why they ask me, well, why do you concentrate on the on the awards so much? Well, the reason why I concentrate on the awards is it gives me a little bit of a slice of the best of the year. It may not may not be the best, but it gives me a bit of a slice, and it gives me an opportunity to come across names that I may not know uh, previously, which might take me back to the recommended list where I can have a bit of a look and see, oh, what have this, what's this person done in the past? And then I can read some of that because the links are still there. You can still go and read it. And it gives you a bit of an opportunity to find out what's actually happening in the field because I can't read everything. No, no. And I've, just, I've got to have somebody helping me bring the number of options in a particular category down to something manageable. And the awards is really probably about the best way of doing that. Sure. Uh, now, one other thing that I wanted to mention uh, before we go on to the main part of this particular episode, David, is that um, uh, to discuss a little bit about the 2023 World Science Fiction Convention, which, as you know, is going to be held in Chengdu, China this year. Uh, since the beginning of the year, there's been... Well, there's been a few announcements that have caused a bit of consternation in the uh, SF and fantasy fields. Uh, firstly, they've changed the dates. Mm. They moved it from um, uh, mid-late August now to the 18th to the 22nd of October. And they've also changed the venue. It's still in the same city, but they've changed the venue from the convention centre where they were going to hold it over to the Chengdu Science Fiction Museum which sounds really interesting. It sounds like a really good thing and really good place to, to hold it. There's only one problem. It's still under construction. Oh, dear. And uh, this is never a good thing to have. Uh, most people are basically saying, well, the Chinese have got a good reputation for being able to get things up and done really quickly because they throw huge numbers of people at it, which is fine, but it sort of leads you to think, mm, this is... Um, may cause a few problems. Uh, there's also a bit of ructions uh, at the moment because they're saying that the um, the call for the Hugo Award nominations, uh, which allows everybody who's a member of the convention and even the member of last year's convention in Ch- Chicago, to be able to nominate across any of the Hugo Award categories, they haven't opened as yet. And I read a uh, report this morning that even if they were open today, 
they that would make them the l- latest of any convention in the last 15 years. Mm. In To give people a bit of an idea, in 2010 at AussieCon 4, we opened the Hugo nomination period for a convention in early September. We opened the nomination period on January the 1st. Uh, and uh, just because you have it, all, we had it all set up, ready to roll, and it was January the first. Nothing else was going to get published in uh, two thousand and nine. Had to be, had to be done then, and off we went. Mm. So we were able to get it out early, but unfortunately, they seem to be having a bit of trouble here, which is you know, not, not really all sign. that flash. Mm. So there's a few ructions there about what's going on, but we keep an open mind and hope and pray that they will be able to. Um, uh, get things uh, together in time and uh, deliver a good convention. Um, we never want to see a Worldcon fail for any in any country, anywhere, uh, and we hope it's uh, successful. Uh, but I've made a firm decision that I won't be going. I had thought that I would, but I'm now I'm certainly not going. Uh, I think that the um, I think the COVID situation is still too fraught, uh, especially in China. And with that large number of people, there's going to be very large numbers of people wandering around with COVID. And you just not, I don't reckon you're going to be able to avoid it some way or other. So I'm just going to steer clear of the whole thing. Unfortunate. I was looking forward to going, but just can't do it. There we are. So that's my news. Yep. Uh, have you got any? I don't think I've got any news, no. At least nothing oh. I've researched. All right. Okay. All right. Well, that sounds good. So I think we might move on to... Um, uh, the main topic of our discussion for today, David, which is my best film and TV of the year. That's right, because I've got nothing. Yes, you've got nothing. Um, well, I've not got entirely nothing, but if I, you know, I, I, it, it seems pointless choosing the best five out of when I've only seen four things, you know, so it's not hmm. worth it. So, no, I, yes. I'll, 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 I'll make the odd comment as you go through yours. Okay. Well, I do want to make, I do want to make the comment that... Um, uh, I have noticed lately, David, that I'm following your suggestion when I'm watching film and television, especially, well, TV, of course, on TV, but films on uh, on the te- television, I do actually now like to have the subtitles oh, up yeah. going all the time because I'm finding that uh, a lot of the audio is either muffled or muddy and uh, I don't know what's going on. Um, well, we're also getting it, deaf, <laughs> Perry. Well, speak for yourself. <laughs> I, I know but, that I um, am. Uh, well, I know you are. You've always you've, you've said that, and you're fully aware of it. I haven't actually noticed it. Although, of course, my higher and low higher registers are, are, are basically they've gone. But uh, as you would expect, as you get older. But I don't know that I'm that bad. I, uh, but I'm just finding some of it hard to follow, and. Sometimes some of the accents are hard to follow. And then also you get uh, some uh, television programs, because they are becoming more international now, you're now actually getting people coming in who will suddenly burst into a bit of French or German or Russian. And without the subtitles, you go, what was all that about? Mm. Maybe that was really important to the plot. Having it as the subtitles sort of gets over that problem straight away. So there's a tip for young players there, David. Use the subtitles. Never hurts. Anyway, my f- year in film. I didn't actually see as many films as I thought that I actually had. I, only, I watched 35 in the year. Uh, and the major thing that I did this year was get back to watching more in the cinema. Uh, 
which I'm really glad about because I do actually like watching a film on a big screen. I know you have a problem with this because of um, uh, the sound, but I really like being able to go to a cinema and sit there and watch it. And being a retired gentleman means I can go during the day. And as happened with uh, the uh, the film that I have as num my number one of the year, uh, myself and my companion, who happened to be Chong on that particular day, were the only two in the audience uh, in the whole of the cinema, which is, and it, well, it wasn't a big cinema, but it was big enough. And uh, so that was a weird experience when you go uh, midday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and there's nobody else around. Mm. It's really quite strange. It feels like you're in your own private screening theatre. And mm. it's, uh, it's, uh, it's interesting. So anyway, 35 films, uh, down five on the previous year. Maybe I was watching more... Uh, on the streaming uh, in 21 as opposed to 22. But there we go. Well, I'm not terribly sure. I didn't quite go down to that level of detail. I'm not I'm not a stats nut as much as you are, David. I know you like to um, extract every bit of ounce of uh, statistical juice out of all your data from your reading um, uh, for the year. I didn't do that with this. But anyway, so look, I'll get into my top five films for the year sure. uh, and explain how we go. My fifth best was a film called The Stranger, directed by Thomas N. Wright from 2022. This was on Netflix, and I gave this one 4.2 out of 5. This is an Australian rural noir uh, film streaming on Netflix, which uh, involves a large and complex police sting uh, set up to catch a child killer. Um, it's slow, it's creepy, it's dark and disturbing, but it's really well written and well acted. Um, and it's the best Australian movie I've seen in quite some time. It's actually based on a uh, real-life case of a, a young young boy who went missing by the side of the road, um, uh, was picked up by somebody who was never seen again uh, up, in, um, up in Queensland. And so it sort of follows that particular... Uh, particular case they've changed all of the names um and changed the timings so that it's only loosely adapted from it i know that the parents uh, of the young boy that went missing um, were very upset that it was being made and didn't want it made so they tried to make it it's not about the boy going missing it's about the sting to catch the actual killer and it's really it's quite it's quite an excellent film uh, it's it's slow and it's calm but it gets there in the end and the major actors that are involved in this are really 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 good and i, I thought it was wonderful mm. number four may gray this is a new uh, may gray film directed by patrice leconte from 2022 i gave this one 4.3 uh and may gray i'm guessing is a role that every major french actor would like to play and for this one, the major actor is Gerard Depardieu. Mm. Uh, it seems that his ro is a, is, it's a role that he's particularly grown into because he actually makes uh, jokes about how big and fat he is, and um, uh, but it, it, it suits it. Now, I know that a lot of people think that Gerard Depardieu is a... Um, uh, he's a bit of a... Uh, odious person in many ways. He's a Putin apologist and I think he's taken Russian citizenship. But this is one of those questions of 
Do you look at the art or do you look at the person? In this instance, I'm looking at the art. He's absolutely wonderful in this role. There's no, there's no getting over the fact that Depperger is a wonderful actor. And this is a version of May Gray, which is absolutely fantastic. It got about, I don't know, a week, 10 days worth of screenings in Melbourne. And that was it. There was only in selected cinemas. And so it was hard to find. But my wife and I went to, uh, saw it, went to see it on a Sunday afternoon and really enjoyed it. I believe it's now on one of the streaming services, maybe Netflix Prime, not sure. Uh, but if uh, people wanted to see it, they, um, they could. And I suggest they do putting aside the fact that of course Depender is in it but he actually makes it so it's it's a real it's a real bit of a problem that film but anyway I'd suggest people see it number three is a documentary called Harvest Time directed by Neil Young from 2022 uh, I gave this one 4.5 now this is a recording about uh, Neil Young's album Harvest in 1971 uh, there's no commentary there's no recent fix-ups. Uh, the quality of the film is at times fairly poor, but the sound is pretty good. I reckon they might have tweaked the sound a bit, but not the, not the actual video visuals. Um, and but this is one of those documentaries about a recording of an, of an album. And if you don't like Neil Young and you don't like this particular music, I can't see how you can really enjoy this film other than to say well I'm going to look at it as a, as just a way that somebody goes through the process of actually making a particular film um, I think that if you don't like Neil Young you'll find this tedious I like Neil Young I like this particular album and therefore I like this documentary quite a lot in fact Harvest was the very first album I bought back in about mm. 1972 and so I was really looking forward to seeing this. It's the 50th anniversary of the release of that particular album. Uh, Neil Young, as he is at the moment, appears at the very beginning of this documentary as a brief introduction of about two or three uh, minutes. And he looks incredibly and sheepish over the whole thing. It's almost like he's almost apologetic for doing this. And then he, he stands outside of his barn with the door and holds the record up and says a few few things about the the actual album and, and then he walks through the door and closes it and that's it and you don't see him again and then just cuts back to what it was in the 1972 i liked it it was a once-off screening so i had to go and see it on a particular night but enjoyed it really enjoyed it number two uh my favorite science fiction film of the year in fact the most fun i had in any film in this particular year in 1922 and that's Everything Everywhere All at Once uh, directed by the Daniels I gave this one 4.5 this is one of those numbers at 4.5 that every time I think about it I think should it have been higher should yeah I think maybe I should have bumped this a little bit um, I just found this to be just a huge amount of fun yeah yeah it's just a lot of fun massive amounts of, and a it blows those um, Marvel Cinematic Universe films out of the water. Um, it doesn't take itself too seriously. It pokes fun at itself. There's lots of things going on um, in the background. And it's got talking rocks, David. Talking <laughs> rocks. Talking rocks. With goggle eyes. <laughs> I mean, that's fantastic yeah. stuff. Yeah. No, it's just fun. If you, go, if you go into this thinking, oh, this is going to be a serious one and it's got to do all the right things, no. you'll hate it. Yeah. But if you just go in and go, well, I hear it's a mind blast. Let's just go with it. 
And the first five or ten minutes, you're going, what the hell's going on? You know, what's happening here? It's, these people are basically running this laundrette and getting into trouble with the IRS. And, you know, you don't know what's going on. They have to go down to the taxation. And suddenly things start just expanding, blowing up. And suddenly it's like, it's pretty damn good. And now you said, you've read, you've seen I, this. I, I, saw it, I saw it this year. I saw it yeah. a couple of weeks ago because it came on Amazon Prime, I think. And uh, so I have seen it. And yeah, I, I agree entirely with everything you've said. Great movie. It's just a great lot of fun. Mm. And... Don't take, as I said, don't take it too seriously and just go with the flow and just let it go over the top of you. If you haven't seen it, it is going to be, here you are, David, I'll, I'll tell you this. It's going to win, it's going to win the Hugo Award for best, um, uh, best film at, uh, in Chengdu. Oh, it wouldn't be surprised at all. I'm not a betting man, but I'd put five cents on it, mm. I reckon. Uh, and uh, I think that, yeah, it's got absolutely, it's just, it's just going to win because it's just that good. It's got a mainly Asian cast, which is also going to be stand in good stead in China. But it's good just to see these other stories, isn't it? And seeing seeing things like the metaverse and the concept of the chosen one handled very differently. You are the only one. Oh, not now, a bit busy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I'm too a bit busy at the moment. Can't do this. No, 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 fight somebody else. No, 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 you're it. We've been through all the universes and you're it. <laughs> Because you're the biggest failure. Oh, okay, thanks. <laughs> uh, great, <laughs> it's just great wonderful. Great I'm going to have to go back and watch it again this year. I really am because um, uh, it's just a cracker. I just loved it. So anyway, that was that. But my favourite film of the year is a Japanese um, Korean film called Drive My Car, uh, directed by uh, Ryazuki uh, Hamaguchi from 2021. So it was the previous year. It was... Uh, up for Best Film last year in the Academy Awards and may well have run the Best International Film. I gave this one 4.7, which is pretty high for me. It's three hours long, David, and I did not feel that it was that length at all. I was just astounded by um, how good this drama was. It's a drama about family, loss, regret, redemption, things that you could have done that you didn't do and how you connect to other people and how you find your place in the world. And I'm I'm sure there's a whole lot of cultural references in this film that I completely missed. I mean, the car is a very bright red and I'm sure that it means something (laughs) that I've got no idea why, but it's there all the time and you keep seeing it and it's very bright in compared to a sort of slightly washed part of the rest of the film and you sort of think, now he's trying to say something here. The director's trying to say something, but I don't know what the hell it is, but I still like it. Um, I thought it was the closest thing to a full round of novel I saw on, on film all year. I thought it was um, I thought it was excellent. Well, that's interesting because it's based on a short story, isn't it, by Haruki Murakami. And I'm a big Murakami fan, by the way. Yes, it is. And, uh, uh, and so it's got... Uh, uh, Massive literary kudos sitting behind it, and a lot of good chops sitting behind it. If you can find it anywhere, David, I suggest yeah, I must, you, I must see that. you you won't have a problem about it because you have to watch it with subtitles, mm. so you won't have to worry about um, listening uh, to the dialogue. Excellent film, really, really good film, and that was the one that I sat in, and after about an hour or so, and I was looking around and I realised there was nobody there. I said to Chomp, 
we can actually discuss this film as we go, can't we? I said, yeah. So we did. We had a bit of a chat every day again. What does that mean? I don't know. What does that mean? Oh, yeah, okay. Hmm. Anyway, so you say a few things there when you can, and that's all right. So that's my best films of the year. Excellent. Um, uh, so that's those. Now, honourable mentions. I'll give a few honourable mentions to this. Uh, Coda, directed by Sian Hida. Header, Header, H-E-D-E-R, for 2021. This won the best film last year um, at the Academy Awards. I didn't think it was anywhere near as good as um, Drive My Car. I gave this one four. Still still good, but not as good as I thought it would be. In fact, all of my honourable mentions get 4.0, so I won't bother about um, uh, listing those. Being the Ricardos, directed by um, Aaron Sorkin. This is uh, a... Um, a film with Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball uh, and deals with the machinations behind the scenes of I Love Lucy. Uh, I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was a very well done. North by Northwest, directed by Alfred Hitchcock from 1959. I don't think we need to say anything about this one other than the fact that I think it's one of my favourite um, Hitchcock films. There's a couple of scenes where are really hokey and you sort of look at you, oh, okay. You know. um, especially when you have uh, trains going into tunnels uh, at various times, being um, a bit of sexual innuendo. Um, and really, trying to get trying to get knocked down by a crop duster out in the middle of nowhere? Nah, come on. There's better ways of doing things than, than that. Anyway, I still like it. I, I like it as, because it's one of those examples of... Um, wrong man in the wrong place. He just happens, Gabriel Grant just happens to stand up at just the wrong time when somebody is trying to track down somebody and this, this person's name's called and he puts his hand up and asks for the messenger because he wants to send a telegraph. But the guys that are searching for the man that they have, whose name has been called out, notice that he put his hand up and just assume that that's him and then it's a problem and he's off. But anyway. Good film. Good film. Uh, no Sudden Move, directed by Steven Soderbergh from 2021. Um, this is a uh, sort of a pseudo-noir uh, crime film uh, on streaming, which I, which I, which I quite enjoyed. I, I thought it was great. And I re-watched Moneyball, directed by Bennett Miller in 20, from 2011. Uh, the Brad, Fitt, uh, Joe, Brad Pitt, Jonah Hill film, uh, about um, uh, baseball, about the uh, Oakland Athletics and how they uh, attempted to change the way that um, baseball was played and how uh, players for the team were chosen. Quite excellent. And my son uh, dropped in and saw it and he was watching it the other night, so I sat down and watched about another half hour of it again. I really quite like the film. I think it's um, very well done. It's Based on a based on a book by uh, Michael Lewis, and I can recommend that book as well. Even though it is about baseball, it's more about people management and about how you identify uh, what people excel in, and how you have to try and change the general community's perception of how things should be done. You know, just because things have been done the same way all the time doesn't mean to say that's the best way of doing it. There may be other ways of doing things and you have to be open to be able to do things in a large project like a baseball team over a very long sporting season. So uh, excellent stuff. So that's my film for the year, those five. Uh, I won't go on any further. I think I've gone on quite enough. So I'll talk about TV now. Uh as you can tell, see it all on TV, so I don't see it on the cinema. But anyway, uh, 
TV documentaries. The best of the TV documentaries uh, for me was The Beatles, Get Back, uh, on Disney+. Plus. I gave this one 4.7 because I really, really enjoyed this. Three three-hour uh, um, episodes. Wonderful stuff. Absolutely wonderful. Yes, it's long, but it's just astoundingly good. Fly on the wall, look at um, the recording of an album that they made, Get Back, and the subsequent uh, concert up on the top uh, of the roof of the Abbey Road Studios in London from 1969. You can actually see the Beatles slowly breaking up in front of you uh, as at one stage George Harrison walks out and uh, they then the rest of the other three have to go and uh, persuade him to come back and uh, how they tried to keep it all together long enough uh, for them to be able to finish the film finish the album rather uh, and uh, it's, it's quite excellent now last year I had a whole section devoted to food documentaries because I saw a lot of them this year I didn't see watch a single one so I didn't watch any series based on um, on, on food I watched snippets but I didn't uh, individual um, episodes here and there but I didn't watch any film any um, whole series going all the way right through so maybe I'll have to get into uh, get it back into that again so there's no honourable mentions for the TV documentaries TV comedy um, so I watched only watched three seasons of TV TV comedies and um, all three of them I thought were were excellent number three uh, Midnight Diner, Tokyo Stories, Season 2. This is from 2019 on Netflix. Uh, a wonderful set of about 10 episodes, half hour at a time, set in a very small diner with a, with a cast of characters, half of which are in the diner at night after midnight, are standard characters that stay there, and the others are just moving characters that come through. Lots of pathos, lots of bathos, lots of comedy, lots of drama. Good stuff. Really enjoy it. It's excellent stuff. Number two, Only Murders in the Building, season two from 2022, uh, Disney Plus, 4.2. Uh, I spoke about Only Murders in the Building. It's got Steve Martin and Martin Short as the um, two main characters and uh, Selena Gomez, that's right, as the third um, part of the... Um, of the trio that are investigating murders in this particular apartment building in New York. Uh, last time when I spoke about this, I thought the first season, Selena Gomez, I, I thought was really not very good in the role, but she's a heck of a lot better this time. I think she was just, she just seemed very stilted last time, and this time she just seems to have opened up a bit more. Maybe she's just relaxed a bit more, and it's just, uh, oh, well, I can just do this, and just starts talking as she normally would. And it, she comes across a heck of a lot better. Enjoyed this one. Number one, Detectorists, season two from 2015 on Netflix. I love this. Um, couple of guys that are just floating around out in the fields with their uh, metal detectors in, in southern England. Uh, and it's just how they interact uh, with each other and with um, the communities they deal with. It's almost like science fiction fandom, David. They're basically the, the, these detectorists. And you you go through this and you watch it all and you think, I can see a lot of similarities here with um, a lot of Fanish communities of any ilk. Uh, wonderful stuff, and I can hardly recommend it. The detectorists, I believe, is can now considered to be one of the top dozen or so uh, 
English or British television comedy series of all time. And I can understand why it's wonderful. Really, 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 really good. Uh, TV drama, number five, Bosch season seven. This is um, the most recent season based on the Michael Connolly novels about Hieronymus Bosch, who was an ex, uh, who was a uh, um, uh, police uh, homicide detective and had a falling out with the uh, powers that be, the upper hierarchy of the LAPD, and has now moved out to becoming a, um, a private detective. Uh, of Titus Welliver is in the lead role. Excellent choice for this particular character. As a... Well, it starts off basically as a police procedural and then moves into a, uh, a PI-style... Um, television series, and we don't get very many of those these days. It used to be really common on TV in the 70s, 60s, 70s and 80s, and not so much anymore. Uh, this is uh, this is really good. You get some really interesting views of LA that you don't normally see, which is good. Number four, The Staircase. Uh, I saw this on Foxtel. It's on Binge. It's around. Uh, this is a TV series based on a real-life uh, murder murder case where uh, the wife uh, played by Tony Collette is found dead at the bottom of the stairs the police uh, the husband finds her at the bottom of the stairs Colin Firth rings the police the police turn up they look at it and they arrest him for murder because they believe he, he's beaten her to death although they can't find the murder weapon but they say that all the blood splatter and all the rest of it looks as though uh, he's beaten it to death with a fire poker or something, although they can't find it. Um, this is a real, as I said, it's a real life case. And what happens later on is that a French documentary team have just finished a project and they hear about this particular case and decide that they would like to do an investigation of the US justice system. And so they get permission to follow along with the um, investigation and then going into the trial, and I'm not giving anything away because this is real life and you can look it up. By the end of the first episode, Colin Firth has been arraigned um, and uh, charged with murder. and uh, He's then in, put on uh, in remand until he waits till his trial uh, happens and it follows all the way right through the trial and then follows where well, he gets convicted He's in jail, and then he, he's staying in jail. The uh, documentary crew is following him a bit. Then he decides to appeal because they found out some of the prosecution um, evidence was a bit funky and uh, that uh, they think they can, they've can they got grounds for an appeal. Wonderful stuff. Really, really good. You end up getting... The, film, the filmmakers give you three different versions of what might have happened to the female character who dies and you get all three of those. One of them was that she actually does fall down the stairs and hits her head and then gets up and falls again and slips in her own blood and falls again and hits her head again. Another is that he um, beats her to death and another is that she gets attacked by uh, an owl outside and that's where some of the cuts come from in her head, which they weren't able to explain. Uh, they don't... The film... 
does not come down on one side or the other in terms of his guilt or his innocence. You have to work that out for yourself. And it changes. Your view of it changes. For a while there, you think, yeah, he absolutely nothing did this. And then you think, no, he didn't. And then, yes, he did. No, he didn't. And Colin Firth has a secret life as well because he's bisexual. So he has these um, sexual encounters with men in um, in gyms and uh, down down back alleys. And so there's a lot going on behind the scenes. Wonderfully done, well written, beautifully acted. Really, really good stuff. Number three, The Bear, season one. This is on Disney+. Plus. Uh, this is about a young chef who returns from New York to Chicago to take over his family's sandwich shop uh, when um, his older brother commits suicide. And it's what happens as he attempts to bring the sandwich shop up to a level of culinary expertise. And it's the stuff that goes on in the background, the machinations about what happens. It's very squarey, which I thought was very weird for uh, Disney, uh, Disney Plus. I wouldn't have thought they had this. But it's wonderful. It's a real fly-on-the-wall stuff behind the scenes. Um, the stress, the tension, and the pressure about what happens inside a small restaurant. And by sandwich shop, I don't mean, you know, the sandwich shops that we have, David. These are the sandwich shops where they have slow-cooked pork that they've cooked for 18 hours that they pull apart and that everybody, uh, all the fillings are just sort of absolutely phenomenal. And this is high-level culinary art that they're having to do to be able to get things to the level that they want and all the machinations that he has to go through to ensure that the restaurant stays afloat because um, his brother was very uh, bad at keeping his books properly. Uh, Excellent stuff. Hardly recommended. Number two, uh, Dublin Murders, season one. Uh, this is uh, based on the... Town of French. Town of French, Into the Woods. I think it's based on the first two novels my, uh, my wife told me. She's read all of them. And so it sort of conflates the two of them together, brings them all in and, and intertwines the stories that all go together. Uh, I enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was very well-handed, very well done. Uh, I won't give anything away because... The books are excellent, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I believe. And they've got very, very good um, uh, good reputations. I think Into the Woods won um, one of the major American awards for Best First Novel of the Year when it came out uh, some time ago, about 10, well, 12 years ago. That one, yeah. yeah, about that. And um, good stuff and uh, hardly recommend it. And that's, uh, that was on SBS On Demand. I think it may have disappeared from there, but if you can track it down, I suggest you do so. Uh, my number one drama of the year, Succession Season 2. This is um, really uh, a... Uh, it's, well, it's based on the Murdoch uh, uh, media empire succession uh, problems. Uh, I'm absolutely certain not that if anybody says it's not, they well, they're only saying that so they don't get sued. I think that it is, um, and uh, it's uh, wonderful. Brian Cox, uh, the actor rather than the astronomer, Brian Cox in the lead role as the, the matriarch and all the people sure. underneath um, uh and underneath him, the family, his um, sons and uh, daughter, who are who are trying to um, manipulate each other and work out who's going to end up taking over the whole thing, and he just doesn't want to give it up. And uh, he comes across as a it's a beautiful piece of acting by Brian Cox because he comes across as 
a dictatorial pain in the ass, but he does it so well with such bravado and such energy and you know you sort of think my god you'd be scared of him as soon as you walked in the door if you got on the wrong side of him you history basically you're just going to get cleaned up so all good stuff and i can hardly recommend mm. it uh so that my um so they're my uh, final well final uh, categories because i didn't have all that many different categories to put them into i just uh put them uh, that way so my best overall uh from five down to one were The Staircase, The Bear, Season 1, Dublin Murders, Season 1, number two was Succession, Season 2, and number one, The Beatles Get Back, which I thought was the best piece of television I saw all year. Yeah, it was, it was, it was terrific, yeah. Yeah, um, really hardly recommend people go and watch that. I think that uh, you'll have, you'll get a lot out of it, uh, and you'll learn a lot about what music was like back in the late 1960s. That the, the, th- the thing which struck me about it um, was that, that it just shows you them inventing, just inventing the, these songs on the fly. You know, this yeah. starts out with, with someone, with Paul humming something and, you know, throwing some nonsense lyrics to it. And, and it's just about the creative process. I think that's what yeah. the thing came to me out of, out of watching that. So yeah, yeah, it's very, very and good. the idea—the idea that if you can't think of the right word, just put a word in that's got the right number of um, uh, of syllables, and then figure it out later. But you, you know, you just move it, just keep it moving. Don't, don't, don't put it aside because you can't work out, you can't get it perfect. Just keep it going, keep it going, keep on working it, keep on adding it. And it's, as you say, it's it's wonderful. You get you see um, you see one or two songs get developed right from as you say practically nothing all the way right through to the finished product, and when they end up on on the actual album, um, wonderful piece of uh, fly on the wall documentary stuff, fantastic. Yeah, right. Well, that's me done for done. Uh, film and television. Mm. Um, so we were going to talk then about what you've been up to. Uh, over the last 12 months, because you obviously haven't been watching any film or TV very much. <laughs> Not very much, no. Uh, well, I've read, read no, a lot of books, but we talk about our books all the time. Um, I, I suppose the other thing which is worth talking about is that my volunteer work, which we have talked about on the podcast, the volunteer work I do for Standard eBooks. Uh, Standard eBooks is a, it's a volunteer organisation which produces uh, high-quality classic books in the public, which have entered the public domain. Or we should have been in the public domain for for a long time, um, but what's interesting is that each year now, more new books uh, drop into the U.S. public domain. But the Americans have got this very strange system of of what they consider uh, to be the public domain. Like in most of the most of the world, it's it's a certain number of years after the author or the creator has died. Uh, that that it, books that they've written enter into the public domain, which is a kind of sensible system. You sort of think, well, if, if it's fifty years after the after an author has died, you know, the, the, any royalties and so on are probably passed on to their their children by now. It's now time to make make this more available to uh, to the public. And it used to be in Australia, it used to be fifty years uh, after the death of the, the the author, and I think it was the same in the UK. But the Americans had this strange period when there were there was a lot of lobbying of Congress, and I think mainly to, from from big organisations like Disney, to say, oh, hang on, no, we don't want some of our stuff entering into the public domain so quickly, 
And and they, there was a law passed which got dubbed the Mickey Mouse Law because it literally was protecting the the first um, the first material that featured Mickey Mouse from entering the public domain, and they sort of stopped it. But eventually, it, they reached a point where that that law no longer applied, and that because of the dysfunction of the American Congress, they haven't bothered passing a new law, and so they're now back into a system where works enter into the public domain. Each year, new new books enter into the public domain. So each, each year comes by, there's some new, a new set of books uh, appears into the public domain. And what we do at Standard eBooks is, uh, as well as all the, the you know the older books that we're const- constantly producing, we we keep an eye out for what books are going to be entering into the public domain, what new books are going to be entering the public domain. So this year we we uh, produced a whole bunch of books which uh, just dropped into the public domain. Uh, I'll just list them very quickly. Um, the Big Four by Agatha Christie. So Percy Hits Back by Baroness Auxey, I think that's how you pronounce it. Scarlet Pimpernel stuff, good stuff that's now into the public domain. A Natural Death, which is the third book uh, in the Lord Peter Wimsey series by Do- Dorothy L. Sayers. That was one of the books I produced for them. Um, the Story of Ivy by Marie Belloc Lowndes. I don't know that one. Elmer Gantry by Sinclair Lewis. There was a film made on that, I think. Yeah, um, The Bridge of San Louis Ray by Thornton Wilder. To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. Tombstone by Walter Noble Burns. Death Comes for the, Ar- for the Archbishop by Willa Cather. And Ashenden by W. Somerset Maugham, which I think are, yes, yeah, based on, it's a spy, series of spy short stories by uh, Somerset Maugham. So all of those have been entered into the public domain and we've produced them as high quality ebooks which you can download for free from standardebooks.org and I also wanted to add here that um, the standard ebooks is becoming you know kind of more and more prestigious in a way because uh, it's just been accepted by the Library of Congress in the US they've now produced a, a, an online epub reader and they in their announcement about that they announced that they've added 11 books from standard ebooks versions of classic works um, which they describe as a project producing high-quality open-access editions of public domain classic books as EPUB files. That's good news. So, yes, yeah, so I, I, um, I produced the uh, Dorothy Sayers, and I actually also produced the, the previous book in the series. I've produced all of the books so far um, by Dorothy Sayers in the, in the standard e-books catalogue. So, yeah, that keeps me busy. So that, that's, that's that. Oh, the one thing, yes, the one thing I should add is that the, the American odd, the, the strange American system is they have a system where you have to register or, and renew the registration of, of, of public domain on certain books, which means that for some reason, quite a lot of science fiction books haven't had the, the copyright renewed and therefore they've fallen into the public domain, even though the author didn't die 70 years ago. In fact, the the jewels of Aptor by Samuel R. Delaney is just is now in the public domain and it's being produced for standard ebooks. Samuel Delaney is still alive. I mean that that just doesn't seem it's, fair. It's odd. It doesn't seem no, fair that doesn't. at all. No, no, it doesn't. I, I don't. I just do not understand that. I um, I think it's a very peculiar way it that they're wrong got, too. doing things. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Look, I don't have seventy five years after 50, fifty years. I thought was enough. Yeah. But they moved it to 75, 75 years after the death of the original creator. That's enough, yeah. surely. Yeah. And so just move it like that. But yeah. you know, yeah, the it's just odd. 
It just seems to be weird that the Americans always like to do things slightly differently mm. from everywhere else. Never mind. And it makes it hard to keep up with. But it, but the old, um, look, standard e-books is a, a, an excellent uh, extra thing. You can sign up for the newsletter and um, you get uh, an indication every month about what new books have um, uh, been produced by standard e-books and you can download them. Uh, you can uh, subscribe and become a Patreon or uh, pay a certain amount to um, help them along, which I think is an uh, excellent thing to do. Uh, I'm working on a, a project uh, long term to, to actually finish one particular novel and I've uh, slipped away from it a bit. So um, this is a bit of a prompt to me to uh, get back and finish that off, David, so that we can get that out sometime later this That'd year. Good. And um, uh, that would be a good thing. It's an Australian SF novel, and uh, we hope to be able to get that finished. I'm about half to two-thirds of the way through it. It's a long, slow process because you have to check the original um, uh, newspaper serialisation and then check it against the... Um, uh, the uh, text that you have that you've found, work out what's missing, what's fixed, make comments about why is he called it this way, is this a... So sometimes you just don't know whether it's um, uh, a typo by the author or a typo by the uh, newspaper, but you have to bring those up and then uh, discuss it. And then I'm just commenting putting comments in where i sort of see that there's a little bit of a discrepancy here and um i'm going to leave it to my esteemed editor namely david grink <laughs> to be able to tell me uh, what he thinks that uh, needs to be done when it gets uh, when it gets yeah. finished but we'll let people know when that one's um, up and going but i think this is a really wonderful service uh the uh the final products are fantastic uh they are all uh proofed um and checked by a number of people uh, to ensure that the the text is as it should be. The layout's wonderful. The formatting's good. Uh, you've picked covers for the no for the books. You've got a standard sort of formatting for the uh, the front page, which um, which stands out, and you know as soon as you see that, oh, that's a standard e-books book, and that's I think a very good thing to have. Um, I think it just is a wonderful service all the way down the line. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's a, a great, a great uh, thing. It's, it's a lot of fun to do the work for. Although some, some, some of the projects can be very hard. I, I, oh, I, yeah. I, I madly agreed to do um, Boswell's Life of Johnson, and I'm finding that a, a heck of a strain. But some people do huge books. Um, like we've got the entire um, given decline and fall of the Roman Empire that came out last year. Wow. Um, and uh, the, all of Peep's diaries, which is like a, a more than a million words, pe wow. people have produced those for standard ebooks. And uh, yeah, but and they're all available for free. Yep. I mean, this is a astounding piece of work that people are doing here, and um, uh, it's only to be commended. There's there's no way that you can criticise this at all. This is just great stuff, and it's a great resource that people can pick up without any problem, download them, and they're yours to keep, and they that's it. Yeah. Um, so uh, it's worthwhile if you're going to end up using it to pitch in a few dollars here and there uh, to help 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 them out. I think it's a excellent excellent project Indeed. and i wish i had more time to help you yeah, out david so. but unfortunately i've got ten thousand other projects <laughs> to do. Problem, okay, yeah. get to. Anyway. it's always a bit of a problem yeah. anyway okay there we go cool. all right well thanks for that discussion about standard ebooks now um another thing that we uh, normally do around this time of year is that uh get in contact with a few of uh, friends of the podcast to ask them what their favorite books were uh for the previous year 
And uh, as we've done for the last couple, I uh, went around last week to Lucy Sussex's residence and had a bit of a chat to her about what her favourite books were for 2022. And here she is. So, Lucy, we're back again for another another year, 2022, and our best books of the year. Another duck, here comes another year to quote Ogden Nash. (laughs) Well, yes, they keep on rolling around all the time, and uh, we uh, like to look back on what it is that we've done in the previous year, just to uh, get a bit of an idea of what it is we read, what we liked, what we didn't, although we don't really talk about telling much about what we didn't like all that much, which is probably a good thing. Uh, I think that if you, um, uh, I'm not big on dumping it on books, I'd rather just ignore them if I didn't actually like them terribly much. That's just my view. Other people might want to go for the idea of getting stuck into them. I don't. I actually do like a well-written um, hatchet job, but it's one way to make enemies. Well, it is, and you really don't want to do it um, with a first novelist in particular. You want to mm. basically give um, people a bit of a chance to uh, get a bit of a career behind them uh, before you really get stuck into them. But how was your reading year in uh, 2022? Did, was it uh, up to standard? Probably less of it um, in that I was finishing up a book, the biography with Megan Brown, co-writing a biography of Mary Fortune, crime writer and wild woman. Also her son George, who was a um, larrikin and bank robber and safe cracker. So that meant that I was necessarily reading 19th century women's history and true crime a lot. All right. So that was... So when you're writing a book, you don't necessarily want to be influenced, but if you hear about something that you think you ought to read, then you then you bloody well better read it. Um, so that influenced the reading. I also got some loads of reviewing. Now, with reviewing, you don't necessarily have a choice when, say, you're writing for, the, um, for, for Channel 9, and so you get offered a couple of weeks short fiction form of viewing. You've got no real control over what you're getting. And sometimes you get some stuff that you absolutely love. And sometimes you get a stuff stuff that you are iffy about. Um, it's rarer to get the stuff that you absolutely love. But then that said, um, early last year, um, Jason Steger, I think, decided to send me some weird stuff. He might deny this, but... Um, so I got some stuff that was a little bit out of the ordinary because he knows I like slightly weird, and that was that was an interesting exercise. Neither of them, and one of these did make the cut, but as I say, it was a bit of an odd year, and I don't think not much SF um, and fantasy got read. It's just what happened. Okay, well let's move on to um, uh, your best books from last year, 2022. Um, how do you want to handle this? Do you want to do it in categories or you want to do top five? Or what I'll do is to... I'll do categories. All right, okay. So what's first off? Well, Australiana and new, and um, Realist. And these are not necessarily preferred categories, but I know that good stuff will emerge. And there's two novelists I, I, I want to mention because... I got them in context reviewing and I, I thought of both that they were going to go on and do really good stuff. The first one was a Fremantle Arts Press book by um, Maria Pappas um, called Skimming Stones. And it was, was about cancer. Uh, it actually is a big topic, but it's actually really hard to write well about, can, about cancer 
people can't get their distance from it. Yep. It's a complex phenomenon. And how do you write about about without hand wringing or getting getting too visceral? So it's skip. also a very personal topic for a lot of people. So absolutely. So you don't get the distance now. What Maria Pappas's what what was interesting was she was writing about cancer carers who do not get generally get much attention. But if say a kid child's got cancer, then there's a huge burden put upon the family members, and there's a lot of psychological stress, and there's also guilt for the kids who are healthy. So Pappas is writing about a family of two daughters. And one of the daughters gets cancer and it pretty much destroys the parents' marriage. The father can't cope at all. And then when she grows up, she meets a fellow cancer survivor in that someone who was in a similar position with their sibling. And they have an affair. It's it's more than a fling, it's an affair, but they can't stick together because he's married. But what actually shows that she's this... So there's cancer description, but there's also description of the natural world, which acts to, which acts to heal them, heal the two protagonists. It runs a huge risk of, risk of being mawkish, but instead she manages to, to avoid that and make it a, a positive t- um, treatment of a subject, and there's a good deal of restraint in this. So I thought she's... So I think this is probably going to pick up an award somewhere or other, Okay, was it published last year? Um, yeah, published published last year. So I think it's probably going to pick up a WA award okay. or a shortlisting. The other one was also WA from Alan Unwin, WA content, Emily Brugman, The Arlands. And this is something I wouldn't have thought, thought would have come out. And this is, again, a review book, so I didn't have any control over it. So it's about Finnish migrants to the Hootmanabrolis. Now, the Hootmanabrolis are famous for the Batavia, but these are Finnish fisher people who emigrated to Australia post-World War II, and from a famously cold part of Europe, they go somewhere famously hot. Um, and yet, it's a, Finland's a maritime na- nation, so that's a good reason. So this is, again, a, real, a novel with a really good sense of place, coral caves, seals, and a the characters are also very alienated by Australia um, and just what it's like in the early 50s, early 60s, very insular culture and the Finns are regarded as commies and so they have to consult an, an encyclopedia to find what the <laughs> Finns are and after that they don't say, oh, you're not commies. <laughs> um, so Brookman is actually writing up her grandparents' experience and she creates a family saga of three generations. So it does remind me of the Finn family movement trolls in a way if the movement trolls had ever got to Australia. But um, but it keeps on making literary references to another um, Finnish work. That's the Kalevala, pardon my um, um, pronunciation, which is a, a folklore tradition, very ancient. What the book is about is that they're seeking a better life and they don't necessarily find it, but they find a better life. They, don't, they find an, an interesting and different life. I think that this is that this is again um, one that's an author who's going to, to go places um, and has shown a lot of promise and it's worth looking at uh, just for what's happening in this, in Australian literature because you get like the um, 
Okay, you get um, Jessica Au and her book, which has just won the, the Premier's um, Literary Award in Australia, which is like 100,000. And this is, again, not your usual Australiana writing, but it's, it's very interesting. This is Cold Enough for Snow that yeah. um, won the Victorian Premier's Award yeah. just recently. Yeah, and won the big one, 100,000 yep. grand, which, mm. in my humble opinion, is make enough to make... Um, authors run away and find another, and invest that loot into something more rather more lucrative, but <laughs> never mind. I mean, some people have won that award have never been never heard of again. Anyway, that's just me. Um, okay, so out of out, of, so I'll leave that fiction away. I'll note another interesting fictional thing: Treacle Walker by Alan Garner by Fourth Estate got lot, got shortlisted for the Booker, mm-hmm. and even the literary folks I know said long overdue but it's very Garner and in retrospect Garner is a really good writer on um, tradition and folklore and how they permeate the present and Treacle Walker is again his theme is very much Cheshire two people I know were really really who are intelligent readers, were really, really puzzled by this book, but they hadn't read any Garner before. Um, I think it's not his best, but it was interesting that it... I suspect M. John Harrison was responsible for getting this into the Booker shortlist. He was on... He was one of the judges for the Booker this year. Yeah, and he's got interesting tastes. Mm -hmm. But that's a... I think the best... Um, discussion of the book that makes sense is Maureen, the late and lamented Maureen Kincaid Speller in Strange Horizons. That, if you read that, that makes that'll give the book sense. So interesting, but not not worth mentioning, but not a um, top one. Okay, now I'm going to Australiana history. Now, true crime, two books here. Um, Rachel Franks. Um, this is New South Press. It's called An Uncommon Hangman. Now, I know Frank, so I'm a little bit, maybe I'm a little bit, bit biased. Um, but I asked to review this one because I thought, okay, I think this is interesting. So, Nosy Bob was the um, long-standing hangman in New South Wales. He got the nickname because he had no nose. He had trouble finding a job, even as a cabman. So he ended up as the hangman. And what she, her, her treatment of this is really interesting in that she writes it from the hangings, what he did, all of them. She looks at all his hangings. And he had a huge track record. Uh, he, um, he hanged a couple of people who were associated with George Fortune, which is why I was very interested in the book. What it adds up in is it's a very powerful argument about capital punishment and what it does to people. Nosy Hangman, luckily for him, was a loner because nobody wanted to have a drink with him mm. because of what he did. Yeah. But he was also very good at his job and he wanted to have humane deaths. So he'd you know, weigh people and he'd look at the ropes. But there were occasions when he got nervous and he made an absolute muck of it and those people died appallingly. Mm. I thought that that was one of the most inventive reactions to treating a treatment of true crime that I'd read in a long time. Um, the other one I'm going to mention is, again, inventive. It's Alan Unwin, Dallin Dufty, um, Ned Kelly. And this book is called Nabbing Ned Kelly. 
And what this does is that this is looking at the police view of Ned Kelly because you get Ned Kelly as outlaw. And what you don't get is, all right, there was a royal commission into the police because they really made a mess of it. But that was the top brass. Um, And so I'm interested in this because Ned Kelly was very influential on George Fortune because Ned Kelly was a hero to villains of the time and... George Fortune and his gang actually claimed to be members of the Kelly gang at one stage oh, during, okay. during a bank robbery, which got them into a lot of trouble. I would have. This actually takes the approach of the ordinary cops, how they were dealing with it, and also looking at the problem of informers, which was rife. It comes out largely in the um, people know about Aaron Sherritt, who is Ned Kelly's pal, uh, relative and... Um, how he was killed, for but looking at other informers and particularly someone who was on the you know, someone who was who was feeding the police information misinformation who I hadn't heard of who was a local school teacher. It's sort of concentrating on the mess that the police made of it because the top brass were in competition and also. Uh, the two commission, the the two superintendents, um, both the top brass wanted the, wanted the glory of getting Ned Kelly, so they're actively undermining each other. Um, and this came out at the Loyal Commission, and Dufty takes the attitude that the real hero was a, a detective called Mick Ward, who was Irish, and who knew the area. And what he did was he grew a big beard, and he went undercover, and he was. And he recruited informers, so he laid down the groundwork, and he did a lot of hard work, which didn't, which he didn't get credit for. And so this is the story of Mick Ward, which is just a detective doing his job. And so that's an aspect that I was really interested in because Mick Ward was called in to be part of the detective team that was dealing with George Fortune and his bank robbery gang. Connections all over the place. Absolutely. It's all interconnected. But this book is a really rattling read because Dufty knows how to structure the narrative Mm. so that you've got... And he knows how how to build suspense. So when you were sending the trains up to Glen Rowan, they had to, first of all, to get the seam strain up to steering point, which means delaying and delaying while they got, you know, basically fired up the engines. And then when they start off, they can't afford to lose any time so that... They barrel through the boom gates. They crash through the boom oh, gates. Okay. So it reads like it would make a f- fantastic film, um, but it's not. It's not. It's not fashionable by any means because it's not Ned Kelly's hero. So it's so it's a so it's a non-fiction. Non-fiction. So it's a piece of non-fiction, but it's written with a novelist's eye. Yeah, exactly. Like Adrian Highland's book from a few years back on the bushfires and he mm. wrote it because he knew one of the cops at King Lake so it was King Lake 457 from memory and so it was written with a crime writer's appreciator of house structure and so you know it just keeps you reading just a just another quick point about um, Ned Kelly was something mm. that I just read recently um, John Monash uh, met Ned Kelly Wow. Because John Monash was a... Uh, he was born in Gerildery, and he happened to be in Gerildery at the time that uh, Ned Kelly was there holding up in the bank. And um, the story is that he met Ned Kelly in the street. He was only about 13 or 14 at the time. Uh, this is 
Monash, not Kelly, of course. And Monash was very impressed with him, thought he was a very, um, a very impressive uh, man. And uh, remembered him all the way right through. So that's a peculiar thing that I came across just recently. So. And there's another connection with Geraldry because Mary Fortune's second husband, Percy Brett, who was a who was on the police and then became a squatter, um, he was in the bank and he's one of the hostages. Oh, there you go. <laughs> and she possibly knew this. So interconnections anywhere. Yep. So very quickly on to the next um, bit of biographical interesting recreational reading this is a book that's been out a few years and it's called Polly Plum, it's from New Zealand Otago University Press from Jenny Coleman, my sister gave me this now Polly Plum was the pseudonym of Mary Ann Colclough who was an English woman who emigrated to New Zealand, on the way her brother died, she was obliged to support herself as a governess when she arrived in New Zealand she married um, and her husband died, left her with um, two young children. And she was obliged to go, get, go back to teaching to support them, which turned her into an activist and also a journalist. And her pseudonym was Mary Polly Plum. Just the amount of crap she had that was thrown at her just because she was a woman and she was entering, entering the public public realm which women are not supposed to do in the 19th century despite the British Empire being headed by a woman Queen Mm. Victoria but she was really good on what she knew from personal was women's rights but she was also interested in prison reform and um, women's housing single women's and she came to Victoria at one point and she wrote for the Herald well this isn't particularly covered at um, in this book, whose focus is New Zealand, was very much interested to see that she wrote a lady's visit to Pentridge in 1875, got into the notorious A division in Pentridge where the guys were masked and forced to sleep on the on wooden floors. And as a and to do that, you really had to be determined if you were mm. also a woman. Yes, I would have thought so. Um, and wrote a really good piece of piece of journalism which okay I'm a bloody minded researcher I just went after I'd read the book I went looking for what else she about her journalism and this isn't mentioned in the in the book but I thought okay I think that piece of journalism influenced Mary Fortune who also did a visit to Pentridge only it was to visit her son four years later and wrote about it all right um, another non-fiction which is really good and I'm only going to mention this in passing is Julie Phillips the Baby on the Fire Escape, Creativity, Motherhood and the Mind a Baby Problem. Now, Phillips is James Tiptree Jr.'s biographer. She's also writing a biography of Ursula Le Guin. She's the official biographer. Now, Tiptree didn't have any children to her... Not, not her fault. She had an abortion that went... went, went was, she got an infection from abortion. Le Guin had children and regarded children and as much as a joint project with her husband and her writing so she and how do you balance creativity with mother motherhood so she's looking at every anybody from from artists Alice Neal to Angela Carter taking in quite a range of people um, not all white nor het nor in conventional relations like the US uh, figure Audre Lorde and some were what we'd call good mothers, 
and some are what we call bad mothers, but it's... I don't really have space to talk about this, but it's an interesting... It's an interesting examination of how they managed and their various responses. I thought this this was an outstanding book on the topic of which is an area which is got which is quite well covered. And I'm looking forward to Philip's discussion a uh, book on on Le Guin, which I think is going to be ace. All right, where are we going? Um, all right, I'll leave out science fiction and fantasy because the yeah, one book I. I really did read in this area. I didn't read very much, and one book, my top chart would be about seven and a half out of ten, and I think that's not really good. that's not what I go. I'll just get on to crime and finish. Um, one of the first ones up is a book that that Perry recommended and in fact gave me a copy, which is Laid Law, William McIlvaney, um, and this is a book that kicked off Tartan Noir, because he had, because he was. A respected literary novelist in Scotland, and I think also poet. Mm, couldn't tell you. Yeah. Not sure. Yeah. Also, son of son of another McIlvaney, who's a crime novelist of note as well. Mm-hmm. This is really interesting because it was because if you think if you go back to um, Jekyll and Hyde, that was in some respects Stevenson's. That was it's read as a as a fantasy or you know as a but it's actually a crime novel. Yep. So that, in a sense, is the progenitor. And there's also, um, yeah, there's a few other books in this area. But this kicks off Tartan Noir, and certainly it's a it's a huge influence on Rankin. And I'm going to be heretical here, and I think that um, Laid Law, on the evidence of this, I read a couple of Rankins after I read the Laid Law, and I thought, well, it's not derivative, but They've got different approaches, and McIlvaney. It's interesting talking about Laidlaws. It's detective-centered, but it's not a whodunit. It's a form called it's a form called the How Catchem, which was existed parallel to the whodunit, and for a long time the How Catchem was pretty much the was the dominant form. The whodunit eventually took over, but. So by the How Catchem, you're talking that. Is this a situation where the lead detective or whoever the lead character is is pretty much certain who the uh, the culprit is, uh, the perpetrator of whatever crime it is they're uh, investigating, and then it's just a matter of trying to work out how they can get all the information together? Is that what you mean? Yeah, and that all the reader knows. Oh, right. Okay. So this is... If you, the classic of television one for this would be Columbo, wouldn't yeah. it? You know, where basically he knows pretty much within... <laughs> five minutes at the start of the program who it is and he's just got to basically work his way through to getting all the information to actually tie it all up. Yeah, that's pretty much what happens with this one in particular, I remember. The other thing is that it's... I actually went and read it twice, which I don't do lightly because I wanted to see how he'd done it. Mm-hmm. Um, who done it, how done it. Yep. Yeah. And the interesting thing is that while you think the plot meanders, it doesn't. It's very, very tight. One bit of information leads to another bit, but if you're lightly reading, you think, how did so-and-so know that? And then you go back and look at it. Oh, yes. And here's the difference that I'd say between him and Rankin. It all fits in perfectly in place. It's like a mosaic, and it's a very rich mosaic because the whole subject is Edinburgh as it was in the 70s. Yep. 
So you get minor cat. So you get a girl, and you get who's murdered. Okay, she's murdered by a gay bloke. You know that fairly early on. And yes, you could regard this as anti-gay, but it's actually sympathetic for the time. Mm. At the same time, then you get another minor character who's a minor crim who wants to be a hard man, and he's going to fail terribly because he's just an idiot. So you've got the parallel stories, Laidlaw, who's this, again, this damaged detective, but he's good at his job. But then you get also the crims who actually want this solved because it's it's going to bring disrespect upon their patch and so their characters too so there's no obtrusive bits there's no unresolved ends like i was reading a rankin and i'm thinking yeah that's a character who's leaping out of the page but it's never sort of tied tied up or there's you mentioned this bit of popular culture mythology um but that's never resolved so it's tight. It, it's as it, it's it's incredibly tight, but you don't realise it. So um, and it has the added advantage of being short. Oh yes, this is a, sort of a nineteen nineteen seventies novel. And what are we? Two hundred and how many odd pages? Two hundred and forty odd. Two hundred twenty. Yeah, two hundred twenty four pages. He does not waste a word. No, no. So this is the classic idea of you know that it had to fit into a certain. Uh, a certain length and there you are and you can do a lot in that length you don't have to go to 500 pages to, to sort of cover every single little bit that you think that you need to cover no I thought that was an excellent novel the other one I'm going to other crime one I'm going to mention is again I think Julian just brought this home he'd heard that Jean-Patrick Molchette was an interesting writer French dead again this is like again a 1970s novel uh, Molchette was probably the most a uh, formerly innovative French writer of that time, of his time. He died in the 1980s, I think. Um, and leftist, part of the Situationist Internationale, which Situationist was very influential on, on punk, particularly visually. But he's a critic, but he's also Marxist, translated, wanted to be a scriptwriter, so did what Fergus Hume did, write a few books to see if he can draw attention to himself. Mm-hmm. Again, short. Now, this one, and what he, he was writing what he called the neo-polar. Now, that doesn't make sense unless you know that polo is what the French called thrillers. So he's updating the thriller. This one was, his publishers rejected it because it was thought too experimental, and it's fatal publisher apparently thought it was too literary what it's about is about a female serial killer okay unusual and it's very stripped down and it's got a real film sensibility you can see this is absolutely crying crying out to be made of of a film this woman who appears out of nowhere you know murders blokes yep goes and yeah i have to say this is probably one of the most formally original crime novels i've ever read in that so when was it published? 1977. Right, okay. And you get the sense of it, it was the 1977, the world was about to change. Set in France? Yes, yeah, set in France, okay. regional France, yeah. and which is very hidebound. Mm. You know, you get the gentry and then you get the municipal um, blokes with their power, their little fiefdoms. Yeah. Yeah. It's, yeah, you get a sense that this kingdom is about to crumble. Hmm. And how he expresses it is in this woman who's killing men. 
unfortunately, I was doing that all from memory and a bit of research because I can't find it. It's in the house somewhere. <laughs> I, know that, I know that problem. Yeah, final book. All right, after, this is a review book. Um, after Sappho by Sylvie Wynne-Schwarz, American writer. Now, this got long-listed for the um, booker, whereupon people started giving it a lot of attention. In my opinion, it should have been at least shortlisted, and I know people agree with me absolutely. What it's most like is a book a few years back called Square Haunting, which looked at a geographic uh, spot in London, and all the women who were women writers who were associated with it, from Virginia Woolf to Dorothy L. Sayers, to a few have been forgotten. And it was looking, and they weren't there concurrently, and they didn't necessarily know each other. This is similar in that it's a novel about the women activists, again, activist women is the theme here, yep. but they were Sappho's being translated and they're all very influenced by Sappho. So these are suffragettes, but they're also lesbians trying to work out lesbian identity in a period where, okay, homosexuality wasn't what you were, it was what you did. And famously, women couldn't be prosecuted in, in, um, in England for being lesbians because they couldn't define the act. <laughs> or allegedly they couldn't dare yes. to explain it to Queen Victoria. In my humble opinion, Queen Victoria probably knew very well what women did. I think so. Yeah, so it's like artists, Romaine books, um, Sarah Bernhardt, Colette. Those I knew about, I didn't know, sort of Eileen Gray, Lena Poletti. It's very, very, it's poetic, but it's in, it's given that so much of Sappho exists in fragments because, again work again survival of um, Greek poetry was fragmentary sometimes with some writers and sometimes it wasn't particularly those who are maybe a bit out there Mm -hmm. which Sappho was but given that it's it's a novel that really holds the attention and it's chronological and fragmentary but it's really hard you can't stop it can't stop reading it really well written so it begins we were going to be Sappho who was Sappho no one knew but she had an island she was garlanded with girls Um, she could sit down to dine and look straight at the woman she lived she loved however unhappily Um, we read Sappho at school in classes intended to teach uh, poetic meter very few of our teachers imagined that, that they were learning other stuff yeah, I really thought this this was probably my best of the year. Okay. For a literary experimental novel that is um, impeccably researched and yet doesn't drown you in it. Because mm. it sounds from your description of it that it could be given, could be come across as quite dry, but obviously it isn't. It's really quite a, a page turner, which is, uh, which is a bit odd. It's evocative. It's got a sense of place, grease. It's sensuous. It's... And it's got sort of recurring characters. I can follow the characters if I like. But um, that was, again, something I got for review. It was just in a bundle of books that mm-hmm. Steger passed it up and sent to me. As I say, while I was reviewing it, the book a short long listing came up and I managed to get that into the review. Okay. So Fortuitous. Fortuitous indeed. Right. And on that note... I will stop. All right. Well, thank you very much, Lucy. It sounds like a really good uh, 
uh, eclectic and diverse range of, um, of, of books you have there. Thank you very much. Thank you, Perry. Thanks, Lucy. Very much appreciated. Wonderful stuff as usual. We always um, hear some interesting titles coming out of there. And uh, I was also pleased to hear that uh, one of the uh, books that I gave her was on her uh, in her top five of the year. Uh, so that was that was a bit unusual. Uh, it was an old paperback of mine that I read and uh, asked her whether she wanted a, wanted a copy of it or wanted it. Uh, she took it and really enjoyed it. Good. So. That was the um, uh, Laidlaw by William McIlvaney, an early Glasgow uh, police procedural from the 19, uh, 1970s. Uh, excellent book. Excellent indeed. I reckon we're done for this particular episode, David. I think we've uh, certainly been talking for long enough. And um, thanks to Lucy for helping us out. So what are we up to next time? Well, just, just what we've been reading. Because we've had uh, best of segments uh, both the previous episode and this one I've got a pile of books that I've I've you know read and uh, and uh, and talked about in other venues but um, we've never talked about them on the podcast so we'll get to some of those next time and I've read some yes. excellent books so have I so uh, I shall be talking about some of those as well and a um, bit of a bit of a forecast coming up uh, the episode after that will be uh, talking about crime fiction so Next episode will have no crime in it at all, other than the fact the crime of us producing a podcast. <laughs> and that's oh, it. <laughs> all right. Okay, okay that'll be it. Uh, Thanks, David. No I think we're done. I'll see you next time. All right. All right see you later, David. Bye.